Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Civil War cost over 700,000 lives, but it united a nation. Historians have widely agreed that one lasting legacy of the war was that it decisively put an end to the question of the legality of secession. But is that what the historical record actually shows? Was it possible that secession could still be argued in a court of law with the possibility of outcomes too disturbing to contemplate? Was that why no Confederate leaders were ever tried for treason? Professor Cynthia Nicoletti takes a thought-provoking look at the legal aftermath of the war in Secession on Trial, the Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. We'll ask her about it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. So we're coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, where things have been, order has been restored, and the notes are back on the screen. Uh, everything is well here. Everything is well in Greenville uh, here at the university because the baseball team beat Duke yesterday in a midweek game. There are a few times here in North Carolina when fans of North Carolina State and UNC Chapel Hill are willing to show any respect for ECU. We are the redheaded stepchild of college sports in this state. But when we beat Duke, that's one time when uh, the other schools applaud. So that happened this week. Uh, the uh, Skipping ahead to what you know already, that the place to find out what's happening next on Civil War Talk Radio is www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps the site up to date. This show today is February 24 of 2021. Next week, March 3rd, we'll have James P. Bird here to talk about his new book, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War. On the 10th of March, Leanna Keith and her description of the Republican Party during the Civil War, when it was grand, a radical Republican history of the Civil War. And then on March 17th, Brian Jordan returns to the show. His newest book is called A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. There's lots more after that. William Marvel will be coming back to the show in a few weeks. Uh, John Madison will be joining us. We'll bring you up to date on those later. Uh, as always, you can contribute to the show when you're at the uh, the website. The uh, Another thing you can do, uh, another way to, to salve the conscience if you have not uh, donated uh, to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund recently, uh, 
is to purchase a copy of the book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. I haven't mentioned this in a while, but it occurred to me when we were discussing uh, electronic readers, which I still haven't purchased, waiting for that tax refund to come down the pike. Uh, but if you have an electronic reader, you might consider purchasing an electronic copy of the book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? and other FAQ about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, if you, It would give you a chance to see how your reader works if you haven't read the book or any book online before. This would be a way to find out. Uh, if you do have a reader and this is what you do, then it won't take up much space. And this will help get me, uh, uh, it's a win-win for all of us. You get a, a book that will allow you to uh, confront your crazy uncle next time he says something nutty about Abraham Lincoln. You'll have a handy resource to look up uh, an accurate response and get back to him, uh, complete with sources cited in proper Chicago, uh, University of Chicago uh, press manual of style format. And at the same time, it will help me get my uh, recover the, the advance royalties for the book from 10 years ago, which would have been recovered now, but for an incident with the index. I'll tell you about that another time because we don't want to get behind schedule. Um, tonight, we have a very interesting book on a topic that has not come up on the show before in all 500 previous episodes, and indeed doesn't come up in historical discourse uh, very much at all for reasons uh, that, that will, I think, become apparent as we talk. Uh, the book is called Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis, and its author is Professor Cynthia Nicoletti. Uh, Professor Nicoletti, are you there? I am. Hello. Oh, welcome to the show. Thanks for waiting through the the uh, confusion there a moment ago, but I appreciate you being here. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we both have multi-syllabic last names. Uh, do you? Could I call I, you I, Cynthia? What? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Is, is it okay to call you Cynthia? Uh, do you? Yeah, please or do. Is that what you go by? And call me Jerry, please. Um, that will speed things up as we go forward. I go by Cynthia. Very good. Well, you, your book is a book of legal history uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War. You have uh, both a, a doctoral degree in history and a law degree. And I'm always curious about people You're in that situation. You are a recovering lawyer too, right? That is correct. You never quite put that entirely behind you. Um, I, that's what I wanted to ask you. How do you... Um, well, first, do you have it? Did you practice, uh, or do you teach entirely? Uh, how how close to the law have have you skirted? Uh, that, well, that's a, that's a sort of dangerous question. Um, I am licensed to practice law, so I, I passed the bar exam, but I've never practiced. So, but you had that that great experience of the the bar exam. Uh, I did. Uh, yes, the Virginia bar exam, where um, you have to take it in a suit. Really. Uh, Yes, because you have to look the way you would in court. That's the theory. Um, but I should mention, I, I teach law. So I teach in a right. law school. And so um, I teach uh, bread and butter law courses. Um, I've taught, um, I teach property every year. Um, but uh, I do, the rest of my, most of the rest of my classes are cross-listed. So I teach both um, I teach legal history classes, and those are cross-listed for both graduate students and law students. So we get, and sometimes undergrads too, but we get a great mix in the classroom. Uh, I, I always wished there were more of that. When I was in law school, we had very few uh, such opportunities. I recall taking medieval English legal history because it was history, and I yeah. was desperate for some history. And uh, it was an interesting class, I will say, but... Uh, I, I relate to that feeling. I've, I've, I've told people who ask me, you know, are you sorry you went to law school instead of just going into your passion of studying history? And I've always said that law school, I found actually harder than, uh, than the doctoral study, more, more disciplined uh, mental rigor in law school, and that it has made me, I hope, a better historian. Uh, how did you compare the two? 
Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. So I don't know that I thought law school was harder. Um, I think it was stranger, right? I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) you're, you're sort of, you're, um, you're mastering a new language, I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. I found law school quite frustrating, um, because I didn't really know that that's what I was doing, mastering a new language, um, and a new way to think. And I, I totally agree with you that law school, I think, made me a better historian because I, you know, I think about, you know, how to put an argument together. Um, I think about, well, what what type of evidence could I use to prove this point? I think um, I think probably much more logically um, mm-hmm. having been to law school. They, they warn law students that it, one of the occupational hazards is you get frustrated with your your old set of friends and family because they don't think like a lawyer and the the everyday sloppiness is maybe too pejorative, but the the softness with which we reason and communicate that allows us to get along as decent human beings is something you put behind as a lawyer and and re-infantilize yourself and act like a five-year-old. Why do you do this? Well, no, why? Explain why. Go. That's not a good enough answer. And, and not accepting the little white lies that make life bearable. Uh, it, 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 it is a different language altogether, uh, but it does have advantages when doing history. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're totally right that I came home my after my first semester of law school annoying in a new way <laughs> I've never recovered from. Uh, yeah, no, I totally, I totally see that. Um, but I, I mean, I, um, you know, I work at the intersection of both law and history and that's a comfortable mm-hmm. space for me. Um, and, and you're right that I do think it gives, um, it gives, uh, my study of history a type of rigor, at least in my head. Um, so, so I'm happy with the decision to do both. Well, I will say it, it reflected in this book, which I very much enjoyed reading. It was, uh, it, it, it is clearly written. It's free of the jargon that infects a lot of historical writing, um, and uh, and yet it, uh, it it tells a complex legal story in a way that was was certainly comprehensible. And I think anyone listening to the show would have no. Uh, difficulty grasping the argument and and uh, uh, responding to it. We have just a couple of minutes before our first break, so let me ask a question um, that was almost the first thing I th- thought of when I started reading it. How did you get your publisher to let you have footnotes instead of endnotes in this book? <laughs> that that is that is the all important question. Um, so actually, my publisher. Um, who the, the series editor at the time was Debbie Gershonowitz, who is now at UNC, I think. Um, but she she has a preference for footnotes over endnotes. And so she sort of approached me with the question, are you willing to do this? And I said, willing? I would love it. <laughs> it, it it's so much easier as a reader to be able to read and you see the little number and you glance right down to the bottom of the page and there it, maybe it's just a long collection of citations and think okay I, if I need that I know where it is but maybe there's some you know discursive element in it and, and I want to read that and uh, I don't have to hold the, a chunk of the book open in my right hand to the back of the book where the notes are and keep flipping back every time there's a footnote to see if this is one I should be looking at now or I can save it to later uh, most of us, I think, I mean, as a reader, I prefer footnotes, and, and I guess most of us as authors probably do, but I gather they're more expensive or something because you don't see them very often anymore. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, I mean, are they thinking that the audience of the the book would just rather skip altogether? Is that the dirty secret behind endnotes? <laughs> that, that we don't want to see them. I, th- th- I'm sure there's an audience for whom that's true, but I'm, I don't think that's our audience tonight. I think uh, right. the, the, the people who are serious enough to read books like this one uh, certainly would, would not be put off by the sight of, uh, of reference notes and, and endnotes at all. Well, as I said we'll take a short break in just a moment. What I want to uh, 
Uh, uh, now, let me lay out a question for us to think about over the break, and we'll come back in just a, a moment. Uh, the Civil War ends, 1865. There's no question what's going to happen next. You've got a firebrand president in Andrew Johnson who has said treason must be made odious. You've got a constitution that specifically defines treason as levying war against the United States. Mm-hmm. You've got a defendant, a prospective defendant, Jefferson Davis, who has just spent four years levying war against the United States. There's no fact question here. It's right. an open and shut case. He's clearly guilty of treason. There, We know what's going to happen next, but that's not what happens. So let's suspend on that moment and come back and find out talking with our guest tonight Cynthia Nicoletti author of Secession on Trial the Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Racers and Rental Cars is the program for wannabe pro racers and those interested in the racing profession and automotive industry. Join hosts Cameron Ferre and Don O'Neill as they take you behind the scenes with previews and review for race day. It's about the business as well as the fun. We've got the scoop, the guests, the discussion, and the WTF moments. All you need to do is bring your ears. Racers and Rental Cars heard every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Cynthia Nicoletti, author of Secession on Trial, the Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. Uh, so, Cynthia, we ended the first segment with the question, why was there no treason trial of Jefferson Davis at the immediate end of the war when it was so clear that he had done what the Constitution defines as treason? Andrew Johnson was ready to take a much harder line than Abraham Lincoln had promised. Uh, what happened? At that yeah. moment. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so absolutely. So you you laid it out perfectly well. It's totally. It's very very clear that Davis committed treason within the meaning of the Constitution. He levied war against the United States. Um, all of that is very clear, and um, the government, um, you know, is set uh, to to try him for treason. So, Davis is captured. By the Union Army um, as he's fleeing Richmond in um, May of 1865. And the government, um, once they capture him, they're pretty determined to put him on trial for treason. Um, but uh, what happens is that the government, um, Andrew Johnson and his cabinet, um, think, great, we are going to try Davis for treason. And this is going to establish that, um, that the war effort um, was legal, um, that we are a nation capable um, of punishing treason, which means we're a real nation. Um, But they quickly start thinking about um, the possibility that Davis might have raised a defense 
um, against uh, the charge of treason, which involves um, him arguing for the legality of secession. So just to lay this out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so the argument, um, so the government is worried that Davis is going to raise this as his defense. So it's clear Davis levied war against the United States, but treason is a, a crime of loyalty. And so therefore, it can only be committed by somebody who's a citizen of the United States. Um, and so let's say secession was legal. And if secession had been legal, um, when Davis's home state of Mississippi seceded from the Union in January of 1861, um, that would have removed Mississippi from the Union and therefore would have removed Davis's United States citizenship. And if he's not a citizen, um, he can commit, you know, any number of crimes, um, but he can't commit treason. Be the same as if, you know, a Canadian levied war against the United States. So that, did that risk occur to people all at once? I mean, how, uh, did Andrew Johnson say, well, you know, I just had a second thought, let's not put him on trial. Uh, in my recollection and, and in my, my knowledge from, from reading your book is that Davis is being held in, in Fortress Monroe and he stays there a good long time. Yeah, uh, two years. So they don't decide all at once, well, let's not put him on trial. Um, the, the, how, how does this work out? Yeah, so it's it's a slow dawning on them. Um, so uh I, I, you mentioned um, Lincoln and compared his <laughs> views on this to Andrew Johnson. And I mean, there's an apocryphal statement from Lincoln. It's not clear that he said this, but people after the war said that he said this. <laughs> so um, it's, it's uh, what he said was that, um, you know, if Jefferson Davis just managed to escape um, and just slip out of my grasp, therefore, you know, making it to um, Europe or escaping, and so I couldn't um, try him for treason, that wouldn't be so bad. Um, and I think Andrew Johnson finally came to appreciate the wisdom of that idea um, of just letting Davis um, escape, but that dawns on them quite slowly. Um, so, what happens is, you know, in the immediate flush of Union victory, um, it seems like the easiest thing in the world to put Davis on trial for treason. Um, and so the government um, captures him, and then they start debating what they're going to do with Davis. So initially, once they capture Davis, I will mention that they, um, they think about not just trying him for treason, they think about trying him also for war crimes. So they think about um, trying him for possible um, involvement in Lincoln's assassination um, and also for perpetrating, um, you know, the terrible conditions um, uh, in, uh, in Union war camps, um, particularly Andersonville. Um, and so they think about trying Davis um, on those things. Um, and they think if they try Davis for a violation of the law of war, which those two things would be, um, they can try him in a military tribunal where the jury would be made up basically of union generals. So, so uh, his chances are not good. His chances are not good, right? So that seems like a no-brainer, right, to to um, to that he would be convicted in a military tribunal. But, um, you know, once the, once, um, the cabinet gets a hold of this question, they start debating all the legalities of this. And so they, they talk about, you know, can we try Davis for the crime of treason, which is a civil crime defined in the constitution. Um, and uh, if we try him for treason, can we try him in a military tribunal? Eventually, the cabinet debates this for months and months. Um, and eventually, they decide that they're not going to put him on trial um, for treason in a military tribunal, meaning they're going to, you know, they're going to restore the rule of law um, in the United States um, and try him in the place uh, the Constitution says that um, that somebody has to be tried um, in the place where their crime was committed. Um, and where did Davis commit his crime? Well, he committed it basically at his desk in Richmond with his pen. 
um, where he, you know, he ordered Confederate armies um, to go places. And they think if they try him for treason um, in um, in a federal court um, in Richmond, which is where his crime was committed, they don't know what the outcome is going to be. And so they, they debate sort of two possibilities. One is it's possible that one of the judges would instruct the jury that secession is legal or was legal, um, thereby um, removing Davis's duty of loyalty to the United States. If he's not a citizen, he can't commit treason. Or, which really the greater possibility, that um, they don't know what a jury is going to do. Will a jury in the former Confederate capital of Richmond convict Davis um, of treason? That seems like a very dicey proposition. Um, I mean, the possibility of jury nullification is there, that even if the judge instructs the jury to return a given verdict... Once the door is closed to the jury room, nobody knows what's going on in there, and juries have used that power to defy uh, civil rights laws in the South in the 60s uh, and and for less nefarious purposes at other times in American history. So, yeah, that that's certainly a problem, certainly a huge risk that the government would be taking to put him on trial in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean... What, what happens is that, so, um, you know, as you point out, right, um, jury nullification, nobody knows what goes on in the jury room. The jury's really a black box. So at this time, um, federal jurors had to take um, the ironclad oath. So they were required to swear um, unbroken loyalty to the union, um, which means that in theory, nobody who's a Confederate would get on this jury. So the jury would be made up of basically um, uh, freedmen, um, maybe uh, northern transplants, um, or you know uh, the rare white unionist in, in Richmond. Um, but nobody really can be sure, right? Um, you know what's going to happen in that jury box, and so um, you, the the book really takes a look at the case um, through the lawyers. And I would say the lawyers, both who are prosecuting Davis. Um, and his defense counsel just don't know what that jury is going to do. Um, well, and they the, try to. Sorry, go ahead. No, let me just introduce those, those lawyers because that they. I was going to ask that that very question that they really are the heart of the story. Uh, the government isn't leaping to prosecute Davis, but they do gradually get a case underway, and they appoint counsel to eventually. Uh, conduct this prosecution, and Davis has a lawyer working for him and, and a team of lawyers ultimately uh, anticipating that this trial is going to happen. So you you spend a good amount of time telling us about these people who are largely lost to history otherwise, uh, and it turns out their tactics have a lot to do with the outcome of, of the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say, you know, um, in in writing this book, um, I I had this. Uh, I mean, I do sort of love a courtroom drama. I will admit, mm-hmm. um, and here we're not really in the courtroom very much, but um, it's a lot about strategizing behind the scenes. Um, and so, yeah, the lawyers are really the principal actors um, in my story. I was hoping that I could write something that would be like a nonfiction John Grisham novel. <laughs> it, it, it certainly didn't come out um, quite as suspenseful as I hoped, but I certainly did want to sort of play off um, the disparities in knowledge um, and thinking and sort of strategizing on um, both sides um, of the case. So yeah, the central characters here um, are the lawyers. So um the main lawyer who, so this is before the organization, right before the organization of the Department of Justice. Um, so it's lawyers in the attorney general's office and they hire outside counsel, which was pretty normal um, at the time for a big case. Um, and the lead lawyer for the prosecution is William Everts, who's um, a big time New York lawyer. Um, and uh, the lead lawyer for the defense is also a big time New York lawyer, um, Charles O'Connor. And they both knew each other. They they know each other and they both handled major cases before the war, but uh, 
they couldn't be more different socially. Right. <laughs> Very true. Right. So Everts is the product of, you know, um, you know, he's he's from an elite New England background. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's related to the Shermans. Um, he's related to various signers of the Declaration of Independence and that kind of thing. Um, he also um, went to law school. Um, so he he went to college and law school at a time that most lawyers didn't do that. Um, he's quite an elite lawyer. Um, Charles O'Connor is uh, is as you point out, quite the opposite, right? So he's kind of a scrapper. Um, he is, uh, his, his father um, was an immigrant um, from Ireland. Um, he's an Irish Catholic. Um, he is a Democrat um, in New York and sort of shunned for um, some of that uh during the war. Um, and he's not somebody who went to college or law school. Um, he really thinks of himself, I think, as an outsider, even though he is at the top of the legal profession um, in New York. Now, you point out the historical conventional view has been that uh, that that O'Connor's view of this chance to defend Davis was that here was a chance to prove secession was legal, and he was eager to go to court uh, to, to make that argument and vindicate the South. But Davis himself said, wait a minute, that's really risky, and if we lose, I get executed. So let's try something less, less dramatic. You, in fact, argue it's the other way around. Yeah, I mean, so, so I would say um, I don't there hasn't been a huge amount of, you know, attention to this, um, mm -hmm. uh, prior to, to my book, but yeah, I think the, um, you know, the conventional wisdom was that, um, that actually both O'Connor and Davis really wanted to, um, wanted to go to court, wanted to go to trial and argue, um, for the legality of secession and that the government was just, you know, too scared that secession was a winning argument. Um, it's sort of like a weird, lost cause <laughs> flair to this, which is that, you know, um, I think the idea here is that, um, you know, uh, previous people who had written about this, at least some of them, um, I think, assumed that secession was legal, right? And so, therefore, you know, if a court were confronted with this question, they'd have no, cha no choice <laughs> but to vindicate um, the legality of secession, which I think is not accurate. Um, but what, what's, what's going on here? Um, is that O'Connor does not want to go to court and argue for the legality of secession. Um, what I, what he does is that he bluffs, right? He tells the government that he plans to go to trial, that he plans to argue the legality of secession at trial, and that he has every confidence that he's going to win um, and that Davis is going to be acquitted. Um, and he feigns confidence in that in in that strategy, um, so as to get the government lawyers to freak out, I would say, um, to to put to make them worry about this possibility. And so, what they do is they sort of the the government lawyers are kind of trapped in a bind here, right? Which is that they don't want to go to trial and risk the possibility that Davis will be acquitted, but at the same time, they also don't want to say we should drop this case publicly, right? I mean, can you imagine how embarrassing it is um, to be a lawyer and say, I can't convict the president of the Confederacy for levying war against the United States? Like that seems like the easiest thing to do. Um, and so they are they are sort of caught in this, this place where they don't want to drop the case um, and they don't really want to bring it to trial. And they sort of are hoping that a solution will present itself, and it kind of never does. As time goes by, the, these, uh, the, the, as you say, the, the solution just doesn't present itself. There's no dramatic single moment, uh, necessarily. But there are a lot of dramatic implications in the arguments that are, are discussed that could have been made. Uh, we'll talk about those when we come back from another short break. I'm talking tonight with Cynthia Nicoletti, author of Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. 
I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Cynthia Nicoletti, author of Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis, Cynthia, we were talking about how the government lawyers dragged their feet, were reluctant to go to court with a treason case against Davis, uh, in part because if they were to lose the case, and and on the grounds that secession is actually legal, this would undercut everything that had just happened and make the deaths of three-quarters of a million Americans uh, seem unthinkably needless. Uh, but conversely, if they were to win the case, uh, and we can talk about this more in a moment, then secession never happened, and the southern states never left the Union, and many of the things being done by Congress during Reconstruction would lose their justification because the states had never lost their identity as states. In other words, there's no way to win. Right. But what I want to ask is a slightly different question that you address in your book. In that case, well, why not? Why not just drop the whole thing altogether? Why bother asking the courts anything about this? But you make the point that there's a lot of uneasiness with just leaving it at that. North won the war, therefore secession's out. End of story. That, in effect, is a trial by battle instead of a trial at law. And trial by battle is an archaic and barbaric way to settle disputes. We should be better than that. Uh, so people want a case that will settle it. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting that you you put it that way because I think people want, um, want a case for various reasons, right? So it depends, you know, who we're talking about. So, um, so, uh, so, so I would say Confederates... Um, you know, want a case, um, in the courts because they think, well, um, well, we lost on the battlefield, right. Um, there's nothing left to lose, right. Right. right? Um, and that they think, you know, this is a way to, to vindicate, um, their cause potentially. Right. Um, I think, um, I think many Northerners want a case to happen. I mean, uh, Particularly, I would say, you know, within the Johnson administration, initially there is this thought that um, that they have to put Davis on trial for treason because they think that you know this is going to they have to have a ruling in the courts that's going to cement you know the judgment in the battlefield that it's not enough just to have you know um, Union victory and that's it. And part of this, I think, is the idea that you know, if we're a real nation, um, that means that we have to be able to punish treason, right? That, that 
that, you know, that's part and parcel of what it means um, to establish this principle that, you know, the battlefield is not enough, the the courtroom has to follow. Um, But yeah, I think there is certainly, um, you know, as I as I talk about in the book, there's this really, I would say, ongoing debate among all Americans about what it would mean if, you know, the only answer that we get to the secession question is, you know, the battlefield determination. And and people, I think, are quite um, disconcerted by the idea that, you know, um, the court of law is great, um, but not for our biggest legal questions. The biggest legal questions are the ones that actually a court can't contain and that we have to resort to violence and might makes right to, to settle those questions. Well, and Lincoln argued for the, the 1864 election when people said, why don't you postpone it? We're in a major crisis. And he says, you know, the South appealed to bullets instead of ballots after 1860. Uh, after that election, if we postpone our election in 1864, it's as if to say they've won. That, in other words, a dedication to the forms of, of democracy, the forms of law was absolutely critical to Northern self-identity mm-hmm. and to, to simply win the war but give up elections, give up uh, other things was unacceptable. And a lot of people argued that Lincoln gave up too much in terms of suspending habeas corpus and and so on. Right. Uh, So there's a real desire to return to the forms of law uh, and and have a pronouncement from a court of law that secession was never legal. So you've got that that aspect pushing for it. You've also got... uh, but but there are so some so many different players in this story. Um, mm-hmm. There's no American more radical than Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania. But according to what you've written here, he actually volunteers to represent Jefferson Davis if there's to be a trial. Yeah, that, that was be? surprised. That was definitely surprised to find that. <laughs> what was he thinking? Yeah, um, so it's it's really interesting. Um, so, so I will mention Daddy Stevens also a lawyer, um, but uh, uh, Congress is full of them. But um, so Daddy Stevens does he sends a couple of letters um, to Davis um, while he's at uh, Fort Monroe while he's in prison, um, and uh, and and agrees and and says um, I'm willing to represent you, um, and this is this. This uh, this intersects with the point that you made earlier about um, about how uh, about how radical Republican theories of Reconstruction um, intersect in surprising and interesting ways with secessionist arguments. So um, Thaddeus Stevens um, is a proponent of ra- radical Reconstruction um, and. He thinks that secession actually can be useful for him as an argument, um, and so um, I will say that you know legal forms um, matter a lot in this book. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I would say you know certainly his pol- the political uses to which he would put secession are not the same as Davis's, um, but he thinks that secession can actually help him um, in terms of establishing the radical Republican theory of Reconstruction. So his theory is that, you know, if secession managed to carry um, the Southern states out of the Union in 1861, um, and they form a separate nation, and that nation um, was conquered um, by the United States during the Civil War, then um, the Union should be able to use the law of conquest um, in governing, rather than the law of the Constitution, U.S. domestic law with all of its, you know, pesky um, protections um, for states and individuals. Um, if we are allowed to use the law of conquest um, in governing the southern states, that means the law of conquest says basically um, the conqueror can replace um, the law of the conquered at will. Um, and so he says, well, that's a theory that would allow us basically to um, to eradicate, you know, the 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 
unequal um, and racially discriminatory legal systems that are in place in the southern states, and we can replace those um, with racial egalitarianism, um, anything we want. Um, And so this is, for him, a radical theory, but it would ground um, radical reconstruction in, in a legal theory. And so he thinks that Davis's argument is potentially quite useful for him if he could establish the legality of secession in Davis's case. I should mention that Davis refuses the request. Um, and he says, um, I, it would be a very good argument. For, he says something like, it'd be a very good argument for me, but not for my people, um, because he realizes that, um, that Stevens is going to use this argument um, instrumentally to shore up um, Republican um, theories of Reconstruction. Just there are all kinds of remarkable side bits like that throughout here. In 1866, after a year has gone by, uh, the federal district judge in Richmond finally directs the local U.S. attorney to go ahead and, and drop an indictment against Davis. Yeah. Uh, and and says, and by the way, I'm leaving town this afternoon, so I need it in the next three hours. They've had a year to work on it, but <laughs> right. it's a product of three hours work. And it and, and I, it reflects it reflects that it's like a big mess. <laughs> it, 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 I just I, I think of you know students uh, finishing a written assignment in the last few hours before it's due, <laughs> and the quality that results. And, and here is the most important legal document uh, that that attorney is ever going to prepare. And he has three hours to do it. And it's not very good. Uh, eventually they do get an indictment uh, drawn up. Uh, time goes on by 18, uh, I guess late 1867. Uh, they are finally at the point of uh Bringing in additional attorneys, Richard Henry Dana makes an appearance. You know, listeners will remember him as the guy who spent two years before the mast sailing around to California. Uh, they finally go ahead and, and, and get a grand jury to return this indictment, and it looks like maybe this is going to go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Andrew Johnson being uh, impeached at the same time in 1868. Uh, but what I want to ask you about, we've got a few minutes uh, is another character who pops in and out repeatedly through the book is the Chief Justice of the United States. Right. Uh, whose side is he on? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> so uh, the Chief Justice of the United States is um, Salmon P. Chase. Um, and, I mean, he's an interesting character. So um, he initially, um, you know, when he first gets into public life as a, as a Democrat. Um, but he is, um, he's a, he's a, he's an abolitionist. Um, and so he joins the Republican party, but he does always sort of flirt with secessionist ideology before the war. Um, he had been, um, a governor of Ohio, um, and had used, um, states rights type arguments, um, on behalf of fugitive slaves. Um, and so he had, he had utilized a lot of this sort of, uh, secessionist theory, um, before. And so it's very, and, and I should also mention, um, he's also a perpetual candidate for the presidency. Um, so he has political ambitions. And so it's not at all clear where, um, he is on Davis's case on the secession question, um, after the war. And I should mention, you know, he also is, quite aware of how volatile the Davis case is. And so he's supposed to, at this time, um, Supreme Court justices were still um, riding circuit, meaning that they had to um, not just, uh, you know, hear cases in Washington, they also had to travel around um, and hear cases in the circuits. And so his circuit um, includes Virginia. Um, And so he's supposed to sit on this case. And he did everything possible to avoid sitting on this case. Um, you know, it's just a, a sort of litany of excuses as to why he can't um, sit on this case. And so it becomes quite apparent that he wants to avoid this case um, at all costs. Um, and so uh, he's worried, I think, about, you know, what the political implications might be for him if he wants to run for president. Um, 
he does try to run for president, um, and he's looking to get on the Democratic ticket in 1868. Um, and so um, he becomes, you know, an important character here in terms of what he's doing on the in the Davis case, and the the Davis's lawyers, um, you know, uh, are trying to, you know, figure out, you know, if they can use his rulings to their advantage. Um, what happens eventually is that um, after the 14th Amendment is ratified in the summer of 1868, um, Chief Justice Chase actually tells the lawyers, um, I should mention you're not supposed to do this, by the way, as a judge. <laughs> um, he has um, he has a conference with Davis's lawyers and he tells them to argue that um, that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment um, should mean um, that Davis, um, the only punishment for treason um, is not being able to serve um, an office um, and that they should use that to, to argue um, that the indictment um, is faulty um, and should be quashed. Um, and so they take him up on that um, and, and they do make that argument. Which, which, and to be clear, they make the argument to a court that consists of the local district judge and Salmon P. Chase, who hears the argument that he proposed be made, and not surprisingly, finds it a good argument. Um, we've run out of time. Uh, just as uh, Charles O'Connor uh, forced the U.S. government to run out of time, and they finally end up giving up this case uh, after Johnson pardons everyone, um, that, that finally puts the last nail in the legal coffin. But it's a fascinating story of how uh, what seems like an obvious legal question turns into a confusing one, and one that leaves us, uh, and I'll just leave this for listeners to ponder, um, we really haven't had the case had it resolved since then. We've all heard of Texas v. White, and uh, you talk about that in your, your epilogue, uh, but nobody looks at it carefully because we still today, 150 years later, don't want to look too closely at the legality of secession uh, because the, the possibilities of outcomes are, are too awful to contemplate. Uh, it, it's a fascinating book, and uh, listeners, you will, if you have any interest in the legal aspects of the war, you'll be as intrigued as I was by it. Um, I wish we had more time, Cynthia, to discuss the details of it, but it is it was it was something to read. Uh, uh, secession on trial, the treason prosecution of Jefferson Davis. Uh, the author, our guest tonight, Professor Cynthia Nicoletti. Cynthia, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.